Hi, um, I'm Ruth, as I'm sure you're aware, and I have been asked to speak um, to us a little bit about culture and about being disciples of Jesus um, in complicated times. So I'd like to start by asking you a question. And the question is this, where is the smelliest place you've ever been? I think probably the one that comes to mind for me um, is Rotorua in New Zealand, which has mud pools and thermal activity, and it stinks of rotten eggs. It absolutely, like the smell of sulphur is overwhelming. Um, another, because I used to be a school teacher, um, is that of a school classroom on a rainy day. At the end of the day, the smell of sweaty hormonal teenagers. My goodness, I'm sure you have equally pungent alternatives in mind. But here is the thing with smell. After you've been in a place for a while, you stop noticing it. After an hour or so, you stop noticing the sulphur in Rotorua. If you've been in the classroom from the beginning, you don't notice that it's getting fragrant. In fact, um, you'll have seen the adverts for a company that manufactures air fresheners, um, and it has coined the phrase nose blind to describe that phenomenon. And I want to use that idea of being nose blind as an illustration of how culture works, of how our worldviews, the ways we understand reality are shaped. Because the cultural oxygen around us carries ideas and values and attitudes that we don't even notice. They're just the way they are. And so we assume they're right. It's only when people from outside come in and go, why do you do that? Or when we travel somewhere else and go, that's not how we do it, that we notice. Oh, maybe there's another way of seeing that. We don't notice the smell of our own culture because we've grown up with it or become accustomed to it. And one of the challenges we face as followers of Jesus in the 21st century West is that although our culture has roots that go deep into Christian and biblical values like honesty or the value of life or concern for the poor, even those things are there, the prevailing culture around us has shifted gradually, bit by bit. And so things that are normal now, obvious even, are drastically different from even 10 years ago. Some of those changes are great. I'd even say inspired by the Holy Spirit. But that gradual shift means that what the Bible teaches about things can often be radically at odds with the values of people around us. It's just sort of crept up on those of us that are older. And those of you who are in your teens or 20s, you haven't known anything different you think it's always been like this. But what do we do when those clash? Sexual behaviour is perhaps the most obvious. Um, I read that apparently um, a majority of young adults think that it's morally worse to not put out your recycling than to watch porn. That's a thing. But there are lots of other examples. It's not just sex. But what do we do when we find ourselves caught in that clash of cultures, when we realise we've become nose blind or when we just don't know how to make decisions? 
what we need is what the Bible calls wisdom. Any of us can find information. Google will help with that. But wisdom is how we respond to the information. To know what to celebrate in culture, to what, what God is going, yes, and what to resist, what to actively push back on. And wisdom is challenging to come by. There's even a verse in the book of uh, Chronicles about the leaders of the tribe of Issachar, and they were noted because they understood the times and knew what God's people should do. So how do we become like them? Well, in terms of understanding the times, the surrounding culture in Britain today is what we might call secular humanism. Secular, because it says there's no God. And humanist because it believes that humans can fix everything and create, well, utopia. The culture has a mantra that you're probably familiar with. It says, you do you, or be true to yourself. And those sound great. They are liberating, self-defining. We're throwing off the shackles of expectation of oppression to conform. And particularly for groups who have been oppressed, it's the rallying cry of liberty. You can't tell me what to do or how to define myself. But it also has echoes of something from the very start of the Bible, from Genesis 3, where humanity is tempted to break the one boundary God put in place. The servant says, you will not, sorry, the serpent says, you will not die You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is trying to limit you, control you, keep power from you. Become like God. There are no consequences. Or in today's world, become your own God. Decide your own identity, morality, values, behaviour, belief system. You do you. You know best. Your experience is where wisdom and authority lie. You're 21, yes, you have enough experience, enough wisdom, enough authority. No one can challenge or judge you. You can create yourself. There's another place in the Old Testament where a similar phrase was used. It's a book that describes one of the lowest points in Israel's history. It's the book of Judges. And there's a repeated mantra. It says, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Book of Judges is full of sexual assault, exploitation of the poor, people turning against each other. Sounds a bit familiar. If you read Judges, you'll see how bad it gets. You do you. Be your own authority, your own God. It's very seductive now, just as it was then. But just as there were devastating consequences in Genesis and Judges, we see the devastating consequences in our generation, don't we? You know that. Even before COVID, there was a mental health epidemic. Anxiety and depression is rampant amongst young people and young adults. We're repeatedly one of the most unhappy countries on the planet. I'm aware of four young adults that have taken their lives in the last few months. I'm sure you know some too. 
And for all that's great about tech, and there is much that's great about tech, we know that the tech giants are exploiting us, that bots create echo chambers that control what we see. We know the effects of social media, what it spreads, even conspiracy theories that are destroying whole countries in front of our eyes. We still play along because it's unthinkable not to be on social media, even if we've seen the social dilemma. We all know that sexual assault happens all around us and it's linked to that porn piece again. So does racism, homophobia, misogyny, hatred of refugees and asylum seekers, hatred of anyone with different opinions. Read an article by a doctor last week who's received death threats for challenging COVID deniers on Twitter. She spends 12 hours a day fighting to keep people alive and gets spat on in the car park. And that's without the climate crisis or human trafficking or modern day slavery or child abuse or economic inequality. Ah, the list goes on. It's overwhelming. What it shows us is that we make terrible gods even of our own little lives. We are not wonderful beings creating a selfless utopia for the thriving of all. We're just not. Secular humanism is based on false optimism, false hope that humans will somehow suddenly become selfless beings who care about the greater good more than ourselves. In short, you do you still seduces us and then destroys us. It always has. And here's the challenge. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we've made a declaration. At our baptism, we said, I'm not in charge of my life. Jesus is Lord. He gave his life to save me, so I give mine in service of his kingdom. That's what it means to be a Christian. Often we're so familiar with that phrase, Jesus is Lord, that we don't think about it. But originally it was a radical political statement. In the Roman Empire, the rallying cry was Caesar is Lord. That was the value everyone was expected to hold. Caesar was God over what appeared to be an unstoppable empire with the authority over life and values and behaviour. And the reason so many Christians were martyred is because they wouldn't say it. They declared themselves citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, where Jesus is Lord. And when the Roman Empire and the kingdom of God clashed, their allegiance was to Jesus. Now, we don't swear allegiance to the queen or the nation in the UK, like some countries do. But our society insists that everyone is their own personal Lord. And what happens when the secular empire around us has values that clash with the kingdom of God? Well, we won't be killed. Well, not at the moment, but we will be shamed because that is how what appears to be the unstoppable secular culture deals with those we disagree with. We humiliate them. We troll them, bully them, cancel them. Our culture intimidates people to back down, to retract their view, to submit. And yet, if we're disciples of Jesus, he is our Lord. 
He determines our lifestyle, our values, our behavior. We're not called to be true to ourselves. We're called to be true to him. He's not a passenger in the car we're driving, you know, who gives us directions to turn at junctions. He's the driver. Why? Because he actually is God and a good God. And he gave his life so that humanity would thrive. And because the kingdom is a place where we're more than individuals, where we're a body, each a different limb with a different gift. Can you imagine a body where the fingers all went, I will be whatever I want to be. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to pick anything up. And we're shown in scripture who we are, what we're worth, what we're for, what human thriving looks like. My favourite picture is Micah 4. Oh, many peoples shall come to the Lord's house. They will say, let us go that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. He shall be the judge between peoples. He will arbitrate between strong nations. They will beat their uh, swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, their weapons into tools for gardening. Nation will not lift up sword against nation anymore. Neither will they learn war. This is my favourite. But they will all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees and no one will make them afraid. That is God's dream. Unity, peace, wisdom, learning, justice, equity, end to war, end to oppression, safety, community, contentment, no mental health problems, no exploitation. God's dream is not just for you or me as individuals, but for humanity as a species, creation as a whole. His dream is so much bigger than our little personal aspirations even if they're good aspirations. So how do we gain the wisdom that we need to think, to live, to thrive, to be kingdom citizens? Well, there are some great examples in the Bible because people have been here before. You heard Daniel chapter one, and it's one of my favourites. It's the story of a group of young people who were taken away from their home and taken to a culture that tried to assimilate them, that tried to erase their identity, to change their names, to make them learn other literature and customs and worldview, was trying to change the whole way they saw the world. And I would really exhort you to read the book of Daniel because it contains such wisdom on how to be in Babylon, but remain loyal to God. Or in our case, how to live within a secular humanist culture, but remain disciples of Jesus. And how to lead others to that hope and freedom. Here are just five things from that chapter that Daniel does. And these echo uh, my research and other people's research on what causes people's faith to thrive. The first is this, to know what is and isn't acceptable to God. That means knowing scripture. Daniel was convicted not to eat unclean food. He knew that because he knew Old Testament law. They knew what God had said and therefore knew what to stand on. We can't stand firm as disciples of Jesus if we don't know what he taught, if we don't know what his word says. 
We've got to explore and learn and wrestle and discuss and try to make sense. It's not easy. It's really not. But it's crucial. So scripture is number one. Number two is know who you actually are and own it. Be authentic. Ephesians 1 is a great place to start for that. But be prepared to be distinctive. Throughout the Bible, God says to his people, be holy as I am holy. Holy means set apart. It means different. It means distinctive. It means playing by different rules. Good rules. Rules that bring life and hope and freedom. And so we are called to be different. We're called to be authentic. So know who God says you are and own it. The third thing is that Daniel and the boys, well, they stand together. They pray together, they act together, they make decisions together, they inspire and encourage each other. When it got scary, and it did, they had each other's backs. A community of faith is so, so crucial to survive in Babylon. Same in the book of Esther. She actually didn't have friends to stand with, but she had an uncle, an older friend, Mordecai, who challenged her and encouraged her and inspired her, called her out sometimes. And she was scared. Perhaps you're in this position for such a time as this, Esther. Come on, step up. So this is not just about having mates. It's about investing in relationships with people of other generations, people who you can learn from, learn with, who can encourage you, who can inspire you, who can cheer you on and help you with that wisdom when your mates are equally lost. Fourthly, be brave. Be brave. Courage is not about not being afraid. It's about doing things even when you are afraid. It's about having integrity, of being obedient, even when it costs. And if you read the text, you will see that Daniel always speaks with respect, with honour, with dignity to those who come against him. He's reasonable, not ranty. He's honouring, but not untruthful. He does speak truth to power even when he's frightened. But he does that with supernatural wisdom that God blesses him with. And God will give us wisdom when we need it. And then fifth, prayer. When it looked impossible, when they were under attack for refusing to comply, when they were slandered, even had their lives threatened, their response was always to pray. Regularly, several times a day, That's what we might call spiritual disciplines, the habits of connecting with God every day. But also in extreme circumstances, all night with fasting, they cry to God for wisdom, for protection, for discernment, for mercy. And we see in Daniel again and again, God honours that. Same in Esther. When we don't know how to discern what to do, when we think we might be going nose blind because We can't work out what to do when the Bible and culture clash, when we need wisdom to make sense of it, when we find ourselves compromising or responding to that siren call of being our own God. These are things that will hold us steady. These five, scripture, knowing who you are and owning it, standing together, 
being brave and praying. But these are not things that happen by accident. They're things we have to practice. They're things we have to grow in. They're like muscles that we have to exercise in order, in order to develop them. We won't mature into heroes of faith by accident or become those that make a difference to the kingdom of hope without being intentional. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do, to be intentional, to own those things and to do it together. Because the Roman Empire looked like it was unstoppable. It's been gone for nearly 2,000 years. Every empire that looked like it was unstoppable has come and gone. The one we live in, that will come and go too. But the kingdom of God will remain. So, is Jesus Lord? If he is, let's live like we believe that. Bless you guys. See you in a while. Amen.